Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I hear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of God. Good morning, Urban Village. Let's come together in a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for this morning, a morning to gather and be reminded that good things are here for us as well as the hard things. Help us to open our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you have to say to us and help us to know what to do with that as we leave this place. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So before I had my daughter, Sela, uh, I really wanted to try and prepare myself for the transition of having a kid. And so I did that by reading a lot of books, um, which is kind of like trying to climb Mount Everest by reading a bunch of maps. Um, lots of good, useful information, um, but not even close to the actual experience, right? But one of the things that stuck with me um, was the importance of helping your kids name and identify their emotions. That, like, this feeling you have when you want to swirl your toothbrush in the toilet and Appa and Mama keep saying, no, you're not allowed to do that, um, is called frustration. Um, and it doesn't make you feel less frustrated to know that, but it does make you maybe a little bit uh, less overwhelmed by that feeling. And actually, this isn't much of a secret, right? There's lots of um, early childhood education materials um, centered on helping kids to understand their emotions um, and knowing how to express them in healthy ways. Uh, there's this baby book that we have um, uh, based on the novel Emma um, by Jane Austen. And here are the pictures that, there are pictures that kind of help you see which feeling is attached to which, what word, right? So there's Emma is excited, and Mr. Weston is <gasps> surprised, and Harriet is sad, and Mr. Austen is angry. And so she hasn't really used these words yet, but she has kind of started to join me in acting out the emotions, which I'll take as a sign that it's like it's sinking in. Um, 
While you can't necessarily control what happens to you or around you, naming what you're feeling and giving yourself a vehicle for expressing your feelings, whether it's a word, a poem, a song, a good hard run, um, these things help us have a kind of emotional awareness, presence, and outlets that keep us healthy um, from the inside out. So we're starting this new sermon series today, Inside Out, and we're exploring the, how the Psalms can kind of help us do this work of expression, of release, of thinking, of hoping, of praying, of freaking out, of taking what's inside and letting it out in ways that do the least amount of damage and maybe even lead to greater wholeness. And so one of the things that we want to underscore in this series is that all the emotions that we have are gifts from God. Good Christians feel all the feels, not just the nice churchy feelings, right? The road rage is also a gift from God somehow. I'm not entirely sure, but um, all the feels. Anyway, so in the Psalms, we have a record of faithful people feeling all of the feels, honestly and vulnerably, fighting with God, pleading with God, laughing with God, singing with God and Mariah. You've got me feeling emotions. All of this and more. So leave your repression at home and let's get emotional. Um, so a couple of days I was uh, having a conversation with someone about the events of the week, uh, the unjust executions of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, and this was that short window before Dallas happened. And this person said, I just don't know what to do with white fear. White fear. They don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it. And clearly, white people don't know either. Allies and enemies alike are frozen by the force of white fear. That's because fear can't be reasoned with. It's a primal emotion that overrides all other emotions. And fear is what we're talking about today. Fear is powerful. It's dangerous. And its only goal, its primary goal, is to save your life. When you feel fear, even if you're not feeling threatened, if you're not being threatened, your system is overridden by the most primal center of your brain, the amygdala, or the lizard brain. And when you're flooded with fear, your amygdala kicks in and all unnecessary systems in your body shut down to preserve your most vital organs. All your blood rushes to your vital organs. Your vision gets sharper, your hearing grows acute, all to save your life, fight or flight. And these changes happen so quickly that people aren't even aware of them. In fact, the wiring is so efficient that the amygdala and the hypothalamus, which is the command center of your brain, um, start this cascade even before your brain's visual centers have had a chance um, to fully process what's happening. Uh, we've got a doctor in here, so I'm going to be real careful about how I word stuff. Um, these, so, uh, so that's why you're able to jump out of the pathway of a car before you actually even see it. Right? You're just able to respond. These are our most primal functions. And, they, and because they worked the way that they should have in the bodies of our ancestors, um, we exist today. Right? But the problem with fear, the problem with the amygdala, is that you can't talk to it. Right? You can't reason with it. It acts without a second thought. It actually acts without a first thought. Right? And so Mother Nature was like, hold up. You cannot be going on like this. It is bad for your blood pressure. 
So then, this next layer grew to cover the amygdala. It's called the limbic brain. It's actually called the limbic system, I think. Um, the limbic brain can record memories of behaviors and create, uh, that create your kind of overall sense of an experience of, these, of the memories. Um, in other words, it's your emotions. It's where all of your feels are located, um, where your, all the kind of relational bonding stuff happens. And this is where your tribe grows, right? Your gang, your family, your fraternity, your sorority, your unit. The limbic brain is the seat of the value judgments that we make rooted in all of those emotions and those bonds. This is who we are. This is what we're about. This is good and acceptable. This is bad and wrong. Strongly, unconsciously, it influences our behavior. So when you take fear and it gets mashed up with your feelings and values, your gut sense of what is okay, who is not okay, et cetera, et cetera. You get a pretty powerful concoction of emotions and responses at work, driving you to arrive at decisions um, and conclusions that by and large have been made before you even thought deeply, right? Your gut response. This improves survival, but something is still missing because there's no consciousness. That's where the third layer comes in, the neocortex. The neocortex is the part of the brain that you most often see in brain illustrations, right? The two halves. It fills the large gaps that are left by the amygdala and the limbic brains. So it addresses the situations that involve things like planning or decision-making, error correction or troubleshooting, uh, responses that aren't well rehearsed um, and require some kind of unusual approach on your part, um, dangerous or technically difficult situations, and situations that require overcoming a strong habitual response or resisting temptation. In other words, the neocortex helps you be different from your gut responses. The neocortex helped Obama and maybe some people in your life evolve in their opinions about the acceptability of folk who identify as LGBTQ. It helped you consider coming to maybe a church like this, uh, one that is likely different in some key way from the experiences you might have had uh, from church growing up. It uh, helped you probably try raw fish uh, or chitlins or lengua tacos for the first time, my favorite kind of tacos. Um, the neocortex helps you change your mind and work through hard things, painful things, threatening things, to help you get to a better place. So to overcome the sort of gut responses that you might have. So you're welcome in advance for the neurology lesson. Um, why am I saying all of this? Uh, and what does it have to do with the scripture passage? That's a great question. Um, so whenever I thought about Psalm 23, um, I'll be honest, up until this week, I've had a pretty, I think, two-dimensional understanding of it. Um, I've assumed it to be a, calm of some, or, sorry, a psalm of comfort. Um, it only ever appears at like bedsides or funerals. Um, I myself have em employed it in just those situations and moments and places, and I don't think it's really wrong to do that exactly, but, you know, after reflecting on the events of this week um, and doing some deeper meditation on it, I've come to see a third dimension to this psalm. This psalm isn't only about comfort in the midst of fear. It's also about courage. Courage in the face of fear. Life in the face of death. Goodness in the face of evil. Because, you see, I'm not sure the poet is actually looking for comfort. I think the poet is looking for three specific things. First, security. Security from the sharp edge. The edge of hunger, or homelessness, or one disaster away from losing everything. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
security, of a safe space, a place of peace and justice. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Of security, from anxiety about the future, he leads me in right paths. But the poet isn't only looking for safety and security. There's a way to stay living. That's a way to stay living. But it's not really a way to be alive. The poet is also seeking strength. Strength to keep going. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. Even though I'm wearing a hoodie, I will not fear. Even though I'm selling loose cigarettes or CDs, I will not fear. Even though I'm playing music in my car with my friends, reveling in the culture that my people helped to create, I will not fear. Even though I fail to use my signal or have a taillight out, I will not fear. Even though I am at a Bible study in my church, I will not fear. Even though I put my hands up, I will not fear. Even though I cannot breathe, I will not fear. Or this list that came from uh, one white blogger about their friends, why their friends don't want to be risk being an ally of color. Even though I don't know enough, I will not fear. Even though I'll probably do it wrong, I will not fear. Even though it might cost me relationships, credibility, reputation, I will not fear. Even though I'll probably be confronted with my own stuff, I will not fear. Even though I'm afraid of your pain, I will not fear. Even though I am on patrol and I know that my life is regularly on the line for my work, I will not fear. Even though the culture of my workplace, the neighborhood I grew up in, the television shows I watched taught me, teach me to assume the worst about one group of people over another, I will not fear. I choose not to fear. I will not fear. I will not fear. I will not fear. Did you know that fear is catching? Studies have shown that we have these fear hormones. It has, it has this amazing German word, Schreckstoff. Um, it means basically literally scary stuff. It's an alarm pheromone that's emitted from one creature and gets picked up by others. Right? You see it sometimes in insects, in fish, in rodents, in sheep and deer. All of these animals have been shown to either move faster, flee, right? Or they freeze, or they get aggressive. All of it as an automatic response to another animal's chemical fear. It gets picked up and passed along very quickly until everyone is alert. So scientists ask this question, do humans emit some kind of fear chemical? So they did a whole bunch of experiments that involved um, collecting the sweat of terrified people. They did this by making them skydive. And, and then the sweat of those same people when they were exercising. And then they took this sweat, unfortunately, to a, a very unfortunate other group of people who were perfectly calm and gave them a whiff of each types of sweat while they were under these um, fMRI machines. And what they found was that the fear center of um, these people's brains, when they smelled the sweat of the terrified people, those fear centers lit up. Even though nothing in their environment 
had changed or led them to actually feeling fearful, their bodies were immediately on edge. Fear is catching. I don't actually need scientists to tell, to tell me this, because I, but I, it feels validating, right? I can feel it. Can you feel it? By the end of this week, I could feel it in my stomach. Can you feel the fear? It's spreading. It's catching. It's skipping across county seats and state lines, Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, Dallas. Fear is catching. And so it's not enough to have security, although that's a good start. And it's not enough to have strength, even though it's necessary to keep going. Because fear is catching. It matters who you surround yourself with. And this brings me to the final thing, I think, that the psalmist is looking for. Actually, I'm going to stop for a second before that. Um, There are these... Uh, articles that are going out, um, especially to white parents, to talk about, to help, help them know how to talk about race. Because the thing is, when you don't talk about something, that's also saying something. And that's also fear that's getting passed on, right? So fear doesn't always look external. Sometimes fear is just silence. So this third thing that I think the psalmist is looking for, solidarity. A cup, a, ta- a, a table. A cup that overflows, a life lived in God's house, a love that is faithful and good, that pursues you all the days of your life. This is life together. Life together, life with people who want to override their amygdala and their limbic brains. Life with people who want to do the hard-ass work of getting woke, of staying woke, of waking others. Security, strength, Solidarity. These three things combined give us what we need to face fear. Because you see, the opposite of fear is not fearlessness, even though etymologically that's true. But the opposite of fear is actually courage. This is what the psalmist is seeking. Courage is security in the face of fear. Courage is strength in the face of fear. Courage is solidarity in the face of fear. It doesn't mean you don't feel fear. Courage is crying turned inside out. Tears of sorrow transformed to stone-faced, steady-handed, steel-minded focus on cutting out from under the things, the people, the systems, the structures that not only try to diminish us, but make us quiet and soft and apathetic. Fear backs us into a tight little corner by the pointy end of a stick. But courage... Oh, courage. Courage feels that stick and says, like our uh, great poetess, Maya Angelou, you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may tread me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. I may be afraid, but I am not lost. I may be afraid, but I am whole. I may be afraid, but I will keep moving. I will rise. Even though I walk through the valley of death, I will rise. Because I'm secure. Because I'm strong. Because I walk with giants, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. Gifts that nothing, nothing can rob me of them. This has been a long, hard week. No. 
It's been a long, hard, long time. And there is a long time yet before us. Because this is generational work. I've talked about this before. Undoing it will take generations. Generations of courage. Courage to not only demand change, but work toward change. That neocortex work, right? Within ourselves, in our tribes, and our political systems. To click up with folk and dig in for the long, painful, difficult task of being whole. Of staying woke of waking others. And in the meantime, in between time, let us come together in this place, this house of the Lord, to be with our people, to be together, to try to catch fear just a little less, to be challenged and loved and strengthened and inspired by one another. Come, enjoy that sweet fellowship that Rachel was talking about earlier. Come, gather at this table and be assured, be assured of security. Be filled, filled with strength. Be encouraged, encouraged by solidarity so that when you do the work of being woke, of when you are staying woke, the work of waking others, you can do it with deep courage and even deeper conviction that this fear will not be the end of us. That we can and shall and will overcome it. For you for me, for the sake of a God who so desperately, desperately, desperately loves this world. Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. As your child, St. Francis of Assisi, once said, help us where there is hatred, let us sow. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is fear, courage. Amen. Amen.